Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that, had, that they had seen when it had rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take your child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, pray with me again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask that now as we look at this text, as we consider uh, the next portion of the life of Jesus, that you would change us by it, that you would encourage us in it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that your text has for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know I've told many of you before, but I am an Eagle Scout. And so one of the things that I have been trained in is orientation and navigation. And I'm very proud in saying that I have a good sense of direction. Now, my wife, Courtney, might say something different. And we have lots of stories about this, but there's one that is really distinct in our minds from when we were first dating. You see, Courtney's car needed to get new tires, and her dad, who was in Ohio, had purchased tires ahead of time, and we were living in South Carolina. And so I thought, as the dutiful boyfriend, I would go with her and make sure everything went as it should. 
But see, this is before we had GPS on our phones and before we had GPS in our cars. And so we did that old archaic form of going to MapQuest and printing out the directions. And it just so happens when we did this, I thought I saw a shortcut that would impress Courtney. Yeah, see, some of you are laughing because you know where this is going to go. So off we went, and I immediately diverted from what the map had said. And after about 20, 25 minutes, Courtney started to ask questions. Like, are you sure you know where you're going? Or things like, you know, are you sure that we shouldn't have turned left there or right here? And I just kept saying, no, absolutely. I've got a great sense of a direction. I'm an Eagle Scout. I know what I'm doing. Like Rocky Mountain National Park, I've conquered it with maps and compasses. This is no problem. So we keep going. 45 minutes go by. She's starting to say, you know, the map said it was only going to take us a half hour. I said, don't worry. We're going to get there soon. I know what I'm doing. An hour and like 20 minutes go by. Now there's no talking in the car. It's dead silent. But you can feel that someone thinks this is very inefficient. Finally, at about an hour and a half, we roll into the service station. And all I'm going to say is we got exactly where we needed to be. So, in Courtney's eyes, it was inefficient. Our text this morning, there are lots of strings being pulled to get everyone exactly where they need to be. But on the surface, it seems extremely inefficient. And so let me just give you a little context to help you see how this is happening. And the first thing is that Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. But the question would be, how did they get to Bethlehem? And we talked about it on Christmas Eve. They got to Bethlehem not because the angel of the Lord who appeared to Mary and Joseph early on told them, hey, you're going to have this child. You should go and buy a house in Bethlehem and get all set up and get the nursery ready. That's not what happened. Instead, late in the pregnancy, Caesar Augustus issues that census so he can tax the people. And that's what causes Mary and Joseph to go back to Bethlehem because Joseph's required to return to his ancestral home. And so that, on the surface, seems inefficient. Then we have these wise men. And beginning in our story, what we see is that there's this significant star that appears in the night sky, and it acts like an ancient GPS that they choose to follow. But rather than taking them to Bethlehem to where Jesus is, it takes them out of the way to Jerusalem. Now, before we get further into that story, who are the wise men? What we know is that the wise men are coming from the east, and they would have been scholars and astrologers. They had been studying the night sky for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They would have been charting and mapping the movements of the constellations, the different changes with the planets. They would have known how each season brings a different night sky into perspective. And as they're studying these these things, a new star appears on the horizon. And these wise men from the east immediately attribute that star to the birth of a king in the backwater little nation of Israel that sits under the Roman Empire's thumb. Our question should be, how did they know to associate the star with the birth of Jesus? All the threads of the Bible start getting kind of tied together, and it's really interesting. You see, you have to go all the way back to the book of Numbers. In Numbers 24, Balaam makes a prophecy. And Balaam's prophecy says this. This is amazing. Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So Balaam makes this prophecy all the way back in Numbers, talking about a star in Jacob. And Jacob, obviously, is the father of Israel. Like, his name gets changed to Israel. So the star is being associated or affiliated with Israel. And then also there's a scepter that rises. And the scepter is that symbol of a king who rules. And so the prophecy is saying that there will be a star that appears that marks the birth of a newborn king. That's how they're interpreting it. But that still doesn't explain how did they learn about the star. For that, you have to go from Numbers and Balaam and fast forward to the book of Daniel. In Daniel, the Israelites have been brought into exile, right? They've been taken out of the land and into Babylon, off to the east, right? The wise men are from the east. He's off in the east. And Nebuchadnezzar, who's king of Babylon, is having these dreams and visions, and no one is able to interpret them, and it's causing all sorts of problems. And someone says, hey, you should ask this prisoner, Daniel, to interpret it. So Daniel comes, and he interprets the dream, and he does it exactly as it should be. And when he does this, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 2. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And listen to this. And he made him the chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. In Babylon, off to the east, Daniel is set up as the chief prefect over all the wise men that Babylon has under its, you know, under its auspices. And the other thing that we know from Daniel, if you're reading the book of Daniel, is he was someone who did not hesitate to praise and worship his God and to talk about Yahweh and all the things that had taken place in the scriptures that they had available to them. And so how these wise men in Matthew 2 learn about the star and the prophecy of Balaam, it is so likely that it was through Daniel the prophet who as he shared with them and told them the stories of Israel, he told them about the prophecy made by Balaam. And so here these men are charting the night skies, watching the stars, and a new star appears, and they immediately say, that is the star we've been looking for. And they make their way to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, you know, they're traveling hundreds of miles. Some people think it may have even been a thousand miles. So it would have taken several months for them to get to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they start to ask everyone, hey, where is the newborn king? It makes sense on the surface that they would go to Jerusalem because you would think the king of a nation would be born in the capital of the nation. And not only would he be born in the capital, he'd most likely be born in the palace and in the house of the current king. And so they get to Jerusalem, they start asking around, and word quickly spreads to Herod. And you see, Herod, we know all sorts of things about Herod from history, but Herod suffered from paranoia of losing his throne. And so all throughout Herod's life, as soon as he becomes the king of Jerusalem, he is constantly taking people out who are a threat. And so it doesn't matter if it's wives. He had many wives, and he had many wives killed. It doesn't matter if it was in-laws. It didn't matter if it was other foreign rulers. It didn't matter if it was his own sons. 
Herod would do whatever it took to keep the throne in Israel. And he was half Edomite. That's another detail that we know about him. And so when he hears news that there's the birth of a new king in Israel, he is immediately threatened and troubled because he's concerned that the people of Israel are going to stop supporting him and support this new child. And so Herod, you know, he comes up with a plot. First, he gets his scribes and his high priests together, and he asks them, where is the child supposed to be born who's the king of Israel? And they say, well, we have a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, and that's what we have in our text that we read together a few moments ago. In Micah chapter 5, or in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. And so once Herod knows where the child's been born, his kind of evil plan starts to take place. He brings the, these wise men back in from the east. He tells them exactly where the child is. He says, hey, he's just six miles down the road in Bethlehem. Go, worship him, give your gifts, and then please come back and tell me so that I can do the same. But we know this story. We read this story year in and year out at Christmas time. It's pictured in a lot of our nativities, even though this is likely taking place a year or two after the birth of Jesus. We still have the wise men always kind of pictured in the nativity scenes. What we see is Herod's plotting to destroy this child. And so he, he asks them to come back and tell him where he is. And so the wise men go. The wise men go and the star reappears, that ancient GPS, and it leads them straight to the house where Jesus is now living. And they worship him and they praise him and they give their gifts to him. And it's a wonderful occasion and then as they're getting ready to leave, look at what, look at what verse, um, look at what verses 12 through 14 say. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now they had departed, and behold, an angel of the Lord also appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he rose and took the child and his mother by night, they departed to Egypt. What comes next in verse 16 is one of those passages, and we'll, we'll get to 15 and 16 in a minute, but when we get to verse 16, what we see is one of those passages that's just so hard to swallow when we come to them in the Bible. It is so difficult and so dark, and it can be hard to understand. Because the question should come to your mind of, why didn't the Lord appear to the wise men before they ever got to Jerusalem and say, don't go in, don't meet with Herod, cut across here and go straight to Bethlehem? Why didn't the star that had all these special miraculous properties that was moving around and leading them, why didn't it lead them away from Jerusalem and straight to Bethlehem for the sake of these young boys. This is a difficult thing that people wrestle with, and uh, many, many critics of, of Scripture pull this up as a passage to critique and to put forth. Why didn't that happen? Well, thankfully, Matthew tells us exactly why in verse 15. 
and it doesn't necessarily make it easier to swallow what takes place, but it is astonishing what it does for how we view the Lord Jesus. Verse 15, we read that they remained in Egypt until the death of Herod, and that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. And so here, Matthew's telling us the exact reason why all of this is taking place, why what seems to be inefficient in terms of getting you know, the wise men to Bethlehem and getting Jesus to Egypt, why that all is taking place is to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament. In the providence of God, Jesus' entire life is orchestrated in such a way that his life is going to be a picture of the history of Israel. What's taking place in our passage is Jesus is, is being made able to fully and completely and perfectly fill out the resume to be the redeemer of mankind. And part of being able to fulfill that resume means that he not only needs to relive all of the past of Israel, the trials, the troubles, the failures, but he also needs to reverse it by keeping Yahweh God Almighty's law perfectly. And so this is, this is seen throughout his life. And there are all sorts of pictures of this. And so just a few examples to help us get kind of an idea of how this works in Scripture before we look at our passage. I think that's helpful. So one, we have the prophecy from Micah 5 about being born in Bethlehem. Why did Jesus need to be born in Bethlehem? So that he could be the true and better David. You see, Jesus being born in Bethlehem associates him with being born in the house of David. But unlike David, who failed and sinned and was unfaithful at times, Jesus would be a perfect and better king. Fast forward in Jesus' life to when he goes into the wilderness, right? The Holy Spirit, after his baptism, leads him into the wilderness, and for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is without food and water. His life is being put in, like, parallel with the Israelites in the wandering. After being brought out of Egypt, for 40 years, they wander and are called to trust in the Lord. He's to give them manna from heaven. He gives them water from the rocks. Yet, how quickly is it that they fail to trust in Yahweh? Right? Even when they come to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and is receiving the Ten Commandments, they almost immediately turn their backs and create the golden calf and fall down and worship it instead of the Lord. They're constantly complaining and grumbling, wanting to go back to Egypt. But Jesus, when he's in the wilderness and he is hungry and he is thirsty, he doesn't fail like the nation of Israel did. He puts his trust in the Lord. And so, not only is he a true and better David, but he's true and better Israel. Go a little further. While he's at the end of the temptation, or at the end of the wandering, he's faced with temptation. Satan comes and directly confronts him and tempts him to turn his back on Yahweh, his father. That's parallel with what took place in the garden. Adam was tempted to take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and eat uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat it. And Adam failed and he plunged all of mankind into sin and misery. What does Jesus do when he is tempted by Satan directly? He puts his faith and trust in the Lord and he turns his back on Satan and Satan flees from him. 
See, all these moments in Jesus' life are being put in place by the hand of the Father so that Jesus can relive, recapitulate, and reverse all of those failures. And in doing so, he's filling out that resume to be the perfect Messiah for God's people. And so in our passage, we see an astounding parallel in the life of Jesus. And it, it pairs right up with Moses. You see, when Moses was born, there was a ruler over the Israelites so concerned about losing his power because the Israelites were growing in number that he issued a decree to have all the young boys put to death. And Moses is miraculously delivered. Jesus, he's in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, under the reign of a king who's so threatened at losing his power He seeks to destroy the child by having young boys put to death in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. Jesus is perfectly reliving all that Israel had gone through, all the pain, all the sorrow, all all the trials that they went through, so that he can be the redeemer for you and me. And so what this does is it displays... One, that he is the perfect redeemer. Like, he, he fills that resume out perfectly. But two, it displays the power of God's providential workings in our life. In such a dark situation in the life of Jesus, when he is still an, a young child, Herod intends to do something so evil and so horrible, and yet the Lord uses it for the good of those whom he's called to himself. Doesn't make it easier, but it really is amazing to consider the fact that in the life of Jesus, the Lord has orchestrated all these things to take place so that he can check those boxes, so that he can relate to Israel as a nation, as a whole. But there's one last kind of beautiful point to be made. And that it's not just in the big, redemptive, historical ways that the Lord has laid out Jesus' life. But it's also in, in smaller ways. He's orchestrated every moment, every experience that Jesus will go through. And he's done it so that every detail of his life would be one that relates to you and to me. That's what I read in that little devotional at the start of our service. You see, Jesus not only experiences all the past and all the history of Israel as a nation, but he also fully experiences all of the emotions and struggles and pains of being a man like you and me. And so if we're thinking about the life of Jesus, what we see is that he experiences Things like the loss of a father, right? Joseph, we see Joseph one more time in the Bible when when Jesus is 12 years old and he gets left behind at the temple and they can't find him and uh, they go searching for him. That's the last time we see Joseph. And so we assume that Joseph passes away and Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father. Jesus weeps at the death of a friend. When Lazarus dies, He knows what it's like to lose someone you love. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends. 
He's abandoned by the other disciples when he's arrested. He's persecuted. He's born into poverty. He suffers and is uh, faced with all sorts of trouble and fear and pain and temptation. See, he can relate to us completely. Like that devotional said that we read earlier, it says that he not only has suffered what we feel, but he suffers with us in what we feel. He desires to help and comfort us and to do what is best for us in such a condition out of his wonderful love for us. He feels as we feel at the suffering of a very dear friend. That's beautiful. He is a friend and brother, and he, he feels just like we do when we see a friend or a brother or a sister suffering. His compassion is as a parent for a beloved child. And so, friends, as we go into 2021, you know, we can look back on 2020 and say that was not what we expected. But we can know that God ordained such a year for his purposes and for our good. And we can look forward to this year, as our confession of faith said, trusting in that providence. And when we do, you know, we said this, what impact should the belief in providence of God have in our lives? Well, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, trusting in our faithful God and Father. And we ought to be able to go to the one who relates in every way to us for comfort and for love and for compassion. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for Jesus in all the ways that you laid out his life so that it would relate to us, so that he would perfectly and absolutely be our Redeemer, and so that we might know that you are in control of all things. We give you great thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.